1: Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow.
0: And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemican podcast.
1: Today we're going to talk about Giovanni da Correggio or also sometimes referred to as Giovanni Mercurio if if you want to look him up or Giovanni Mercurio da Correggio. Any of those kind of variables? Is that a variable? uh it's a variable any of those combinations right and and you could probably try to track him down and he's a very interesting character
0: we have on the show tonight
1: yeah uh, yeah so i mean he he talks about the philosopher's stone which which we'll get into but uh the interesting character part there's actually there was there was quite a while when people thought he was fictional because uh the stories about him are so far out there that people didn't actually think that this was a real guy until they started to come up with with you know other documents or other sources that would corroborate some of these stories. Um in any case he was he was born around 1450, we're not really sure, and he was the the bastard son, let's say he was he was the illegitimate son of Antonio da Correggio who lived until 1474. And uh, now this Antonio was a person belonging to high nobility of Bologna. Okay, so what makes him interesting to us is that he wrote on Hermeticism and was kind of a pseudo-Lulian alchemist. We just did a, an episode on, on Ramal Nul, right? So uh, that's why I chose this guy. And he had an interesting pupil who may have actually started him on his road to alchemy, which was Ludovico Lazzarelli, who lived from 1447 to 1500. And so that was kind of his apprentice and, and uh, his pupil... Why don't, why don't you give us one of the really crazy stories?
0: Well, so one of these stories will take us back to Palm Sunday in 1484. Correggio made his second public appearance in Rome. The spectacular event was described in detail by Lazarelli in an anonymous tract called the Epistola Enoch. So here's the story. He rides through Rome wearing rich garments, all bedecked and with four servants in tow. He gets out of the city and he changes into blood-stained linen and a crown of thorns. He has a crescent moon shaped silver plated disc around his head, kind of foretelling some of the maybe the the artistic renderings of of, of angelic uh, um, or patron saints that you might see in in the art of the time. Um, and so he's also saying that he's God or Jesus the servant Pedander. He gets out on a white donkey and enters the gates of Rome again. Again, this kind of gives you an idea of what Jesus did when he came into the city of Jerusalem on on a on a donkey to be modest. Yeah. Um, and he's surrounded by all his servants on horseback. On his way to the Vatican, he stops here and there to proclaim the, the coming judgment while identifying himself as Giovanni Mercurio di Correggio, the angel of, of wisdom and dander.
1: Yeah. All
0: right, so and, I, I just, I'm just i trying to put this in my mind. It, it does sound like something very fanciful uh, to to see this guy come in and heretical at well, the same time. Well, that's the thing. Something. This is dangerous. <laughs> this is
1: – Yeah um, to, to make it even worse or kind of to, to up the appearance even. So as people, are, this is on Palm Sunday, right? So as people are leaving the church, the churches, they, they're holding in their hands, the palm branches that they get in mass, right? So it's like, it's exactly like the scene from the Bible. This guy's walking in on a donkey and everybody has palm branches in their hands. Um, and so, you know, just to see what was going on, they start falling to the streets. And we're, so it's really like, just like out of the Bible, and, um, except that, you know, Christ was in Jerusalem, but, you know, this same idea. So, Lazarelli then tells us that the guards at the gate of St. Peter made way for him and allowed him to kind of, you know, to enter, and so even though the, the church was still full of people, including, you know, high officials, like high church officials and everything, and so he gets off his donkey, and then he walks up to the altar, and he kind of offers up his mystical apparel and a paper entitled "The Eternal Gospel." Then he prays to God and leaves St. Peter's. Okay, so that's that's one version of the story. Um, a, a, a contemporary Jewish author, whose name was Abraham Ferrisole, he writes that at one point Correggio was Correggio was imprisoned in Rome. So even though Lazarelli describes him as entering and leave and leaving with you know no problems at all, uh, yeah, that that doesn't really. That doesn't make sense. I think you'd have a lot of issues if you walk up to St. Peter's dressed as Jesus the on Palm only, Sunday, right? The only right? thing
0: that makes me think that he could have pulled this off in the first story might be possibly correct is that during Palm Sunday, much like when you see today, people, especially in Italy, will have self-flagellation when it comes to Yeah, so he thought it was just like a pr- it, it, procession?
1: A procession, yeah. like
0: someone must have passed this, someone must have given permission for this because this guy would have been crazy and heretical if, if, he, if he was actually pulling this off without permission. So, yeah, come on in. So using probably knowing this, he probably said, well, this is a great opportunity to kind of leave what I want to leave at the altar and then just get out of Dodge.
1: Man, who knows what he was thinking. (laughs) Yeah, but but so uh, according to to a different story or a different source that he never actually made it to the altar, um, that he barely escaped or that he was actually, one was that he was imprisoned and then he fled together with his friends and kind of devotees. Um, In any case, he fled to Bologna where he's from and then he was imprisoned anew on suspicion of heresy, and um, uh, but apparently released because, you know, we have further history of them. Okay, so, so give us another one.
0: All right, well, you know, at this point, you know, we're looking at the year 1486, and Correggio made another uh, pr- prophetic appearance, this time in Florence. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, as you can imagine, this is still in the middle of Italy, and of course and uh, uh, at, at a time where you really don't want to be rocking the boat of the church. Uh, he he was on his way to the court of King Ferdinand I in Naples. Um, he had requested to see him. So here's this guy Correggio requesting to to, to see Ferdinand I. Yeah. Right. Uh, undoubtedly at the suggestion of Lazarelli, who who had recently arrived in Ferdinand's court, but uh, Lorenzo El Magnifico ordered Correggio arrested and imprisoned as a trap. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, he was severely harassed and uh, by a Francisc- Franciscan inquisitor. So now we got the Inquisition involved in this. Yep. All right, so this is kind of bad news. But King Ferdinand obtained his release, and we don't know whether Correggio ever made it, made it to Naples at this, at this point. So, I, again, you might have to take this with a grain of salt. All right? So yeah. You know, I, I think at this point, well, these guy's he, probably many, making many a name people for himself. Did. I mean, many people right?
1: thought these were completely made-up stories. Well, until- well, maybe
0: as we're going forward with this is that people tend to embellish. All right, as as time goes on, saying, like, "Did you hear what you know?" Correggio did this week. Oh my goodness, he, he went he went to Ferdinand's court, right yeah. on his own, you know, or he's been he was invited. Now he he somehow got out of the Inquisition's hands, and he's he's still alive. He's still doing okay. Um, he, he, maybe become a folk hero. You know, the, these type of things kind of kind of build upon themselves.
1: Yeah, well, well, his delusions of grandeur get even bigger. In fact, so a couple of years later, we got a story from 1492. He visited Rome. With this time, with kind of a, a bigger following, and he started calling himself the younger Hermes. And uh, in 90, 1497, he preached in Venice. In 1499, he passed through Cesena on his way to Milan. But this time, kind of like as a as like a hermit, he's all he's all humble, dressed in sackcloth. Now, now here's the thing. So. Between before bedecked in gold, like some 15 years earlier, and now, he might he might have not been pretending. He actually might have been this poor. He actually might have lost his fortune somewhere. So, because he was on his way on his way to Milan, he's he's accompanied by his his you know his family. His I mean, basically his whole household, five children. And in 1501, he traveled to Lyon, still with his family, where he obtained an audience with King Louis the Twelfth he kind of managed to impress him with his knowledge and his wisdom and all this, and especially with the promise of, you know, giving him alchemical secrets like how to make gold and even magical secrets and that kind of thing. Then, you know, we kind of lose track of him a little bit, but later he appears in Rome again.
0: And this time with an alchemical uh, cure against the plague.
1: Yeah. So yeah. So So now now, now he's
0: a great healer. Now he's dabbling in medicine. (laughs) You
1: know, one thing I wanted to break down a little bit was – a work of art by him called De Cuerco. I think that might be how you pronounce it. So we'll, we'll kind of break that down a little bit. So, so Correggio was, in fact, more successful than Lazzarelli in getting stuff printed, okay? Now, during the last part of his life, I mentioned that he was wearing sackcloth and moving around with his family. Now, it does look like he actually lost his fortune, and with his family, they were roaming the streets as beggars. Uh, there's one thing published in 1499, which is a, an oration printed in two colors in the form of a cross and a long t- text that says against the barbarians, the Turks, the Skiths. And um, so this was in his visit to Lyon. Now, there's another interesting thing. This is called De Querco, which was addressed to Pope Julius II. At this point, we think he's a beggar, and he's basically trying to impress upon the pope how awesome he is and what kind of knowledge he can give the pope if only the pope would um help him like you know financially somehow get up get back onto his feet so uh, yeah why don't you break that da- down for us like what is de Cuerco? so in de Querco,
0: uh he addresses the pope julius ii whose real name uh, uh before he, he took he took the vows was Giulia, um, Giuliano um juliano del rivera who who Reigned as Pope from 1503 to 1513, to give you kind of a, a context of, it, of his time. Uh, but del Rivera means of the oak. And the oak is prominently put upon the, the, the seal of, of Julius's coat of arms. And it provides Correggio with the ruling metaphor for his text, which he really never stops talking about, which is the supreme magnitude, the beauty, the power of the Pope and its oaks and its branches jutting out from one direction to the other, and uh, it's luster, like running through um, – light through the universe. You can definitely tell that at this point that Correggio is really t- trying to ingratiate himself to the pope. Yeah. Right? He's really no holds barred. This, this guy may not be stupid, but he's crafty. And he's poor. You know, and he, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and when you're poor, if anybody's ever been poor, you scratch harder. You scratch and claw a little harder, don't you? Yep. Yeah. You know, so he wrote things like tri- trismegistical and mercurial. And uh, compared things to a phoenix, referring them uh, all this to Hermes Trismegistus and the alchemy background that he had. So this is where it kind of comes in for this podcast tonight.
1: Uh, like one, one way he uses the word phoenix is he says, it uh, descends from heaven to earth by the way of putrefaction and resolution, separation and purification. It's, it's almost like he's reading an alchemist cookbook. Well, yeah.
0: Putrefaction, you know? ca- p- we're talking yeah. about decay. Resolution. Yeah. We're talking about maybe the hardness or um, you know toughness of of, of of a metal or of gold. Yeah, yeah. Right? This is
1: all like steps and separation, gold, yeah.
0: dissolving, and then purification. yeah Achieving what you need to achieve in alchemy. Yep.
1: Right. And um yeah, and then he goes on with his phoenix analogy, and he says how you know, so it, it burns and then it returns, and now he starts talking about like we haven't really done a podcast on this, but it's important. It's it's on my website if you want to read more about it, but the The primary matter, like the first matter, this is like really big in alchemy. And he keeps talking about like primary and primordial nature, uh, you know, quintessence, which is, you know, kind of like the fifth element. And, um, you know, he talks about chaos, heil, pure, informal, universal matter of nature. This is all going back to the, you know, the first matter. Then he goes on about, so, you know, he talks about the genius of geniuses, the form of forms, the general seed of all the world, again, talking about quintessence or, or the first matter. And this then it kind of gets Neoplatonic, because he talks about um, the world spirit, uh, the end of the egg, the great triple stone. You know, so triple stone is like, you know, mineral, vegetable, animal. And then, you know, philosopher's stone, it's a stone and no stone. It's found in any place on earth and in any man, which is, again, yeah, very hermetical and, and and that kind of thing. Um, is found in everything. It's held by both the rich and the poor, and can be changed into every color, any nature, complexion, with which the stone is brought into conjunction, okay? So that's that's a snippet of, of that text. So again, speaking of the first matter, when you would basically break whatever you're doing down, you know, mostly sulfur and, and sulfur salts, sulfur and mercury, and then build it back up into living matter, which is Aristotelian science, the philosopher's stone, the fifth essence, right, that kind of thing. He, when he talks about the philosopher's stone, he says it can do very many things. Like, w- like what would that be?
0: Well, turning imperfect metals into perfect gold and silver for one, which that's, I think that's would probably be the, the main one. The main yeah. one, right? It um, can also turn crystal and common glass into precious stones and gems. It can also produce a special kind of flexible and malleable sort of glass. Another option you can like also, plastic.
1: It can make plastic. I, I guess he was <laughs> the first
0: plastics guy, yeah. you know, out yeah. there. So you can <laughs> probably do that as well. He can turn pearls and gems and gold into the most precious, okay, and most precious and potable, potable liquor um, or universal medicine, mm-hmm. right? Which is, you know, a lot of people were talking about al- alcohol at the time that would. Cure a lot of things, right? So yeah. that'd be part of that as well. Um, it also causes uh, trees to give fruit 12 times a year. It can turn an ordinary apple tree into a tree of life.
1: There you go. Yeah. All right,
0: solving world hunger right sure. there on the forefront. It can also cure all diseases, restore a man to perfect health and youth. It can also bring a man back from the very threshold of death uh, if you know, God allows it. Yeah, you know, that's, he's writing to the
1: Pope, right? Right, so, so you can't yeah. – yeah, let's <laughs>
0: be careful when you write to the Pope. Um, it can also make a man immune to heat and cold. and permits him to live without need of ordinary food, drink, or sleep. Mm-hmm. So you can even go further than the human body can, can uh, push limits. can yeah. make you Superman. Uh, by means, it can also attract uh, any beneficial constellation and influence from the stars. So this is where we bring so, in the astronomy yeah. and the astrology possibly, So it could actually right? change the meaning of Well, he of is the... covering his bases on this, yeah. this isn't he? Uh, <laughs> it also means uh, you can also find hidden treasures, acquiring the perfect knowledge of the occult mysteries, as well as every art and, and to learn everything you can know about uh, things hidden, uh, known and unknown.
1: Right. Right? Yeah.
0: So it's, really, it's going to be a gateway key to everything you can think of. Um, really, it's probably put this on a pedestal, hasn't it, you know, at this point?
1: Yeah. What? Yeah. What I think is interesting is that because um, I've read many alchemists' descriptions of the philosopher's stone, this this is one of the how do you say, like most inclusive? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, this is like yeah. <laughs> the ultimate, not just universal medicine, but, you know, because some would say it's one or the other. You know, some would say, okay, it'll give you eternal life, or others would say it can turn stuff to gold. But he really covers all the basics.
0: He does, and he, and it has, a, he has one more point that I think is really kind of important to and himself with the Pope. It also allows a person to be anywhere at will by one's own strength and, and in a very natural sort of way. Uh, it means that the Pope can break chase away with any inst- instantly with any um, to any ways to exterminate the armies and powers of the Turks. So now he's bringing in the things that are really bothering the Vatican. The point, which are the outside forces trying to come in and and take territory, which would be the Turks, Mohammedans, um, yeah. um, and all pagan nations with all needs of weaponry um, and with with without a great army. Yeah.
1: So, so he can just will them gone. He can will yeah. them
0: gone. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, he is covering his bases and uh you know by saying that this philosopher's stone can do anything and everything you possibly dream of.
1: What's interesting about this is so he insists maybe because he's talking to the pope, I don't know, but he insists that this is this does not go against the course of nature, right? So he actually says it's not through spells or kind of magical or Kabbalistic art. Like, that's, that's a quote. So he actually says, like, no, this is, you know, all on the basis of nature, uh, you know, by nature, through nature. This is all, you know, this is all on the, on the even. Nothing, nothing and, weird happening here. And
0: by the way, this is, this is the, you know, the safety sort of uh, term at the end of that statement. Um, all this worked with the Philosopher's Stone if God wills it. So yeah. If he doesn't will it, yeah. it's not going to work. Right. Yep. All right. So that also covers his, his tailbone. You know, so that he, he doesn't look like a charlatan if it doesn't work. You know, and it also basically covers himself from being called a, her- a heretic.
1: Yeah, one, one more thing. He, he did kind of a nod to Hermes by saying that it perfects, perfects man beyond and above nature. So even though it's natural, you know, there's kind of hermetic. There's, there's hermetic things kind of sprinkled throughout this, just, just in his language. Yeah, basically, you know, if Julius accepts his uh, thing, he would basically get superhuman knowledge and power. So how could you turn yeah. it down? Yeah, he also like another thing he said that it does is that it can gives you the power of prophecy, so you you can know all things of the past, all things not you know all things of the future. You'll have like a certain clairvoyance, like you'll know the subtle meanings of words. You'll know the solutions of arguments, like you'll know what to say to win an argument. You know, and then like he kind of goes into div- divination, like you'll you know again back to the prophecy thing. Um, but, you know, basically you'll be able to see the outcomes of the centuries ahead and that kind of things. Even, like, even the changes of customs. Yeah, and then, you know, back to astrology, like the disposition, dis- dispositions of the stars. So you'll be able to look up and instantly read the stars. Like, you'll just it'll be like reading English, or in his case, Italian. And, um, yeah, so so pretty interesting stuff. He goes on, though. <laughs> We're not done yet. Then he says that you'll understand the... Uh, you understand the properties of stones, the virtues of elements, the natures of animals, like you know the force of the weather. Like you'll understand winds and um, possibly even read the thoughts of men. Like you'll understand the thoughts of men. So all things that are hidden, I can. You kind of mentioned this before. Like all things that are hidden, you'll you'll thoroughly know. You'll you'll learn. And he compares that to Solomon. Like you'll just understand things. Um. Uh, To quote him one more time, he says, Therefore, all obscurity will flee from you. All your darkness will be illuminated as at midday, and you too will conquer all the hosts of pagans and Turks, like you said, not in strength of body nor in might of armor, but with the word, the spirit, and the rod of virtue. Yeah, now at the end of this whole thing, he does kind of ask for money. So he's like, yeah, I can, I can give you all this stuff. Here's a rub. But, dude, <laughs> yeah, but man, I'm, I'm starving out here. One, one source I read said that, that he, was, he was really in dire straits. Like, he, he was, um, you know, he was weeks away, away from starvation. He had five kids. So, I mean, he had a lot of food to, to put on the table. And, um, yeah, he just wasn't quite making it. Well, you, you know, so, one, one thing, Travis, I look at this, and there was one thing
0: that stands out to me here that wasn't mentioned that the Philosopher's Stone could do. And that's tell the future, you know. I mean, yeah. I and, and I think he had to be very careful with that because that becomes a soothsaying I've, situation. Yeah, I've never heard and that any is of heretical. Is,
1: well, that's why he said it's it's natural, right? It's like, but don't worry, it's all natural, right? It's, but I uh, think any leader would want homeopathy. to say, "Well,
0: what's going to happen in my future?" so I can yeah. see if I can change it. At that point, you're dabbling more into not a religious art so much as as something that deals with the occult. The
1: one source I mentioned. Um, points out that it's possible in certain, like at one point he mentioned, like, as I met you years before, and so it is possible that he he had actually met the Pope before he was the Pope. So he might have actually took a bigger risk here, saying, like, remember me? Like, I'm the guy that impressed you that one time? Uh, Well, now me and my five kids are starving, you know? So... Um, because he had, he might have known him personally, he kind of went out on a limb and say, you know, took a bigger risk. Let's say because I think if you wrote this kind of thing on the run from the Inquisition at one point and writing this kind of thing to the Pope, that's really playing with fire. But um, apparently, he didn't get uh, the Pope's buy-in. So apparently, they, they died poor beggars on the street. It, you know, we talk about it, you know, it's it sounds like Reggio was a
0: like a used car salesman. You know, with a hard sell. <laughs> yeah. All right. You know, I mean, he did a lot of things to kind of uh, prop up his 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 uh, persona, and it sounds like he really tried really hard to try to make a quick buck, but never really an honest buck. You know, yeah. and, and I and I think that uh, you know, the end result is you die poor and penniless and and you know starving. You know, uh, I I think that uh, maybe if if you, if he would have had you know different different idea about what he wanted to do with the tail end of his life instead of trying to really kind of sell the Pope on this kind of grandiose idea that, you know, he might have survived.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, because it's, it's hard to figure out exactly where he went wrong. I mean, he he was clearly out there, but um, apparently before he met his pupil, um, he was kind of just a really radical preacher, just like a, a doom, you know, apocalypse is upon us kind of, you know, the end is nigh kind of guy and uh, but he had he had i mean he had came from a rich family and then i guess he just kind of squandered it away and possibly with alchemicals pursuits there's not a lot known about him and like i mentioned at the beginning he was considered fictitious for centuries because what was known were these stories and it was just until it was collaborated by enough sources that they said oh you know this guy was probably real um they just thought okay this is this is a nice story this guy's way too crazy to have actually existed but um yeah i would Say he's real this this really happened as crazy as that might seem Um, that's all we have tonight for you so thanks a lot for listening
0: thanks very much you've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with
1: Travis Dow and Pete Coleman for more information about this episode other episodes and other information about alchemy alchemists and related subjects visit historyofalchemy.com find us on iTunes subscribe review and don't forget to rate us We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at alchemy podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemicon, which is also available on iTunes or on behemikon.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening.